Thank you for listening to the Park Church Podcast. I hope you enjoy the sermon. As I said earlier, our church was used as a polling station um, for the general election, and they couldn't really use the hall. The hall, many of us would have been more suitable, but the disabled access in the hall, uh, as many of you will know, we have had really for the last 150 years, let's say, issues with our neighbours. And, and the lane um, belongs to our neighbours or to one of our neighbours, and um, they are not keen, they've never been keen. I remember we had a major clearance many years ago, and we came across letters written by our neighbour to our church in 1910, complaining about the coal, um, not lorry, but the truck, or the, 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 the horse and cart that was parked in the lane and complaining about that. So it's been an issue for, for as long as we've been here. And so it wouldn't have been suitable to have folk going up the lane and going in the door at the side of the hall where, where there is a ramp and everything. So the church um, was used. And, and perhaps some of us have thought that seems a wee bit odd or whatever. And certainly they came and they rearranged the seating of the church. Hence the reason why, as I say, we put things back this way rather than all normally and then changing it all again. And I popped in and out. It was there. I tell you, I felt very righteous. Do you know, I was cleaning the toilets in this church at quarter to six on Thursday morning. Well, I thought I'd better. Uh, and um, I, I couldn't sleep because I was terrified that I would sleep in and not be here for them arriving at the back of six. And I didn't want in the use, the Scottish use on polling day, say, voters locked out of Park Church, you know. I didn't want that, so I never really slept. Well, I was kind of dozing. I thought, right, I'll just get up and be there. So they came in, and that pop was there in the morning, and then it was there at lunchtime, and then it popped in uh, at tea time. And then at 10 o'clock, I ran through from the vestry with the sound of my radio, with the sound of Big Ben chiming, so they could run out, shut that side door, and lock out any last-minute voters, because unless you're in the door by 10 o'clock, that's it. You've had it. And I chatted away to them, lovely people, and they and the folk who came on Wednesday and the people who came on Friday to take, to take away the polling booths all spoke warmly of the atmosphere, the beauty of the building and, and, and everything else, which is nice. And, and talking to the folks, the two sets of people on this side and this side, who were at the various, the two polling stations, what was the topic of conversation when they came in? Expecting them to talk about who would be, you know, the next Prime Minister, whether it would be Nicola or Boris in a sense that would win the day. Jeremy didn't, I think, got much of an mention. Or, or the weather, because it wasn't a very nice day. Or uh, the normal topical things. But can I tell you, you know what the, one of the main, or the main topic of conversation when people come in to vote? It was the size of our Christmas tree. And indeed, I happened to pop in when there was, and the good thing about being a polling station is that you've got, well, it's people from our area. You know, it's from Uddingston. It's from this side of Uddingston, but it's from Uddingston. And a, a lady of, of uh, an Asian extract um, was in, and she was voting, and she wanted to take a photograph of the Christmas tree, and bless the soul, she brought her phone out. Of course, there's a big thing up saying you're not allowed to take photographs. So she brought off, and immediately the woman said, oh, put your phone away. And she said, oh, I want to take the Christmas tree. And I said, look, I'll come round. And it was all barricaded off here. I'll come round and stand. And then we got into conversation. She said, oh, is it always like this? And I said, well, no, just for Christmas. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I said, you're coming Christmas Eve. I said, oh, well, very kind. Oh, that would be lovely. And a number of the, 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 the folk, the staff were saying, a number of people were saying that they'd never been in the church or it'd been a long time since they'd been in the church. And with Christmas and everything, we had the Advent candles lit, um, that, you know, perhaps they might come back. God moves in mysterious ways. His wonders 
to perform. The size of our Christmas tree, it is rather large, isn't it? And we do feel for, no, I don't mean that in a bad way, but it is large. And we do feel for the people, we thank them for all the work they did the week past to set it up. And as I said last Sunday, I certainly think next year we need a few of the younger guys, to, or the younger women, to help us to put it up, because it's, it's, it's big. But I like it big. Because my friends, this Christmas season, surely we need to make a statement. And actually, it was lovely that in the midst of the, the Drake Day that Thursday was, in the midst of all that had taken place before the general election and all the things that were debated and discussed round about it, in the midst in many ways of the, the fake brightness of the world's Christmas and the gloom and doom of the realities of so many people's life, it's vital that we make a statement of what Christmas truly is about. Not a Christmas tree of itself. But in its shape and form, it lifts your eyes, doesn't it? It stands out. It's radically different. Let's be honest, none of us could get one of them fitted into our house. It's radically different from what domestic life is like. And the message of the Christmas season is all about that. That's what Advent proclaims. A God who breaks in. A God who does something radically different. A God who is big far bigger than we could ever think of or imagine or contain within our own mortal being or senses. This is something we need to proclaim. God's big and what he did that first Christmas and all that flowed from that is big. And that's the context of what the passage we read earlier from the Gospel of Luke. We've looked at Luke in many times over the years, and may we well continue to look at him after Christmas and New Year. But many of you will be aware of how Luke begins his gospel when he writes it the Luke 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. He's desperately keen, as we should be, that people should know the validity and the substance and the significance of the truths that we would testify to and proclaim. That's Luke's concern for writing his gospel, and that should be all of our concerns, and that should be the job and the business of the church of Jesus Christ. How wrong it is and how sad it is when ministers of the church or others in the church go out of their way to deny the substance and significance of the truths that are taught in God's Word and fulfilled through the coming of Jesus. And yet the context of the story that we read, the context of the birth of Jesus, the context of the birth of John the Baptist, was of a context of gloom and doom. Things were very uncertain. Herod might be, Herod the Great might be on the throne, but the real power lay with Caesar and his proconsul and his armed forces in the land of Israel, and indeed in the lands of the known world. They were the Lord. They were ultimately the boss. And religious life did take place, but it was very formal and structured. You get a feeling and sense of that when you look at the story of the birth of Zechariah. Luke chapter 1 and verse 5, in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God. Good. 
honest, loving people. Both were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. And once when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time came for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. There was religious conformity. There was the practice of faith. There was the carrying out of the rituals of the God of Israel and of the people of Israel who recognized that. But there'd been no prophet in the land for 400 years since the prophet Malachi had spoken. The land had known complete devastation during those 100 years. At one point, it looked as if the whole land of Israel were completely destroyed. Idolatrous objects were set up in the, the temple in Jerusalem. And although under Judas Maccabeus and others, Israel revived and restored for a period, they then fell under the rule and reign of Rome. And for the vast majority of the people of Israel, the Jewish people going about their daily life, the ordinary folk, God, well, he perhaps was there somewhere. But the demands of daily life, the pressures of living in, in the environment that they were in were such that really all those things, that was all right for those who were paid to do the job and who by their clan or class were set apart to carry out the religious rituals in the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem for the rest of the ordinary folk. And yet God breaks in. Verse 11, the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will hear, will bear you a son, and you're to call him John. He'll be a joy and delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other for men to drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. Even before he is born, he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Here is a glorious fulfillment of what God said. Turn back later on to the very last part of the book of Malachi, and what does he say? That in the last days there will be one sent who will be like Elijah and who will do this very thing. This is God keeping his promise. You've been fed up hearing that over these last weeks. God being true to his word. But Zechariah, a faithful and good man that he was, understandably says, Oh, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, I'm past it. And my wife is well along in years, she's even more past it. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which will come true at their appointed time. I'm struck dumb for disbelief. Perhaps one of the problems with the Church of Jesus Christ in Britain in the 21st century, and I was listening again to the words of Archbishop of Canterbury this morning. The church is struck dumb. 
because of his disbelief. And then we read, meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah. Now, let's be honest, these services go on a bit long. You can imagine them saying that outside the temple. What's going on in there? Why is Zechariah? I mean, you went in, you did your bit, and you went out. Is that not what church is all about? Remember still the guy that said to, to Bill once a few years ago, I hear that that's, that's all they do in there. They talk about Jesus. <laughs> and somebody else remember saying, oh, I'm not going to park. He says, all you get is the Bible from beginning to end. You know, you go and do your bit and come out. Remember, you dressed many years ago when it used to be the joint service in the summertime, and you said it was hardly worth getting your coat on to go to the early service in the summer. You were in at half ten and out at ten to ten, you know. Aye, that's just tea time for us. And so you're taking it off a long time. Folks said, what's going on in there? Wondering why you were staying so long in the temple. Because that never happened. You see, people did things, but it was ritual. It was set to the clock. A bell would ring, and it was time to go. I'll not do that today. Don't worry. And it was all just kind of safe, many ways, secure, established, and well, just existed there, like the building in the main street that you just what's there. You know, if it got knocked down, folk might notice it wasn't there anymore. But you know. And when he came out, Zechariah, he couldn't speak. And they realized that he'd seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. And after his time of service was completed, returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant, and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. See, here's the women. They're far more spiritually minded often. Zechariah said, oh, what about this, you know? She says, oh, this is just amazing. The Lord's done this, you know? In these days he's shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. I've read that story again because so often we miss that bout and we just go right to Jesus. Well, that's important, but that's a very vital, important story. How God breaks in. How he's not restricted by the rituals even of religion. And how in those very things he can inhabit them with a you and transforming power where God speaks and actions take place. And lives are changed. Disgrace is lifted. The child is born. And that's why, moving on, that's why when she came, verse 57, when it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. And we read earlier in that psalm, didn't we, about the child, remember? Psalm 113, he honors the childless wife in her home by the Holy Spirit. He makes her happy, the mother of children. Another promise that God has made on the next day they came to circumcise a child and they were going to name him after his father Zechariah that's what happened in those days I hasten to add Colin and Gregor are named under, after none of our, um, our fathers or grandfathers but in those days you better do it or else <laughs> you'd have the mother-in-law at the door but his mum spoke up and said no he's to be called John John what does John mean a gracious gift from God of the Lord's gracious gift. And they said to her, there is no one among your relatives who has this name. Let's stay within the rituals. Let's stay within the confines of what we're secure and safe with. And Elizabeth blessed her, says, oh, no, no. And they made signs to the dad. Listen, just shush a minute, woman. It's your husband that really makes these decisions. Let's make signs to the father to find out what he would like to name the child. And asked for a writing tablet. And to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. And look what it says. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue sent 
free and he began to speak. And what did he do? He praised God. You see, that's what happens when God acts and breaks in. That's what happens when the Son of Righteousness rises and dawns upon a human soul. Their tongues are loosened, their hearts are transformed, and they cannot but help praise God. And that's what he does in his song. Filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 67, he prophesies, praise be to the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hands of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. He is, in fact, in many ways, this is far more, dare I say, scriptural than Mary's song, the one that we all were going to sing, and then tell out my soul, the Magnificat. And you know why? It's because Mary was just an ordinary girl with very limited access to what she heard of the things of God. Zechariah's mind as a priest had been filled with the things of God, with the Word of God, with the promises of God. And that all comes tumbling out. If you were to have a Bible, I have one with some references. If you were to have a Bible with, with references to other parts of the Scripture, there'd hardly be room in the page for all of them draws in the whole story of who God is from Genesis to Malachi to the last book of the Old Testament, the God who made promises to his servant Abraham, the God who raised up his servant David, the God who spoke through the prophets. This is God keeping what? His, what is that? Promises. Oh, good, we've got No wonder we've got a big tree to proclaim how big our God is. Let's sing together. Have a pause there and sing together. Once in Royal David's city stood a lowly cattle shed where a mother laid her baby in a manger for his bed. We're going to sing verses 1 and 2 and 5 and 6, I think it is. The first two and the last two of this carol. Thanks. Now, it's not that there wasn't expectation for things to change in the land of Israel at the time of the birth of John the Baptist or later the time of the birth of Jesus. There's great expectation perhaps in some ways in our own country at this present time. Within Scotland there's expectations and wondering as to what our First Minister and the Scottish National Party would do having won the majority of seats and there's also expectation as to what our Prime Minister will do um, and, and with the, the majority of seats that he has won. And so we are in a period where there perhaps is expectation expectation. But along with that expectation goes a great spirit of cynicism. Nothing will change. They're only in it for themselves. And all the things that we've never heard or we will hear over these coming months, once the Christmas and New Year period are over, that will be and that is part of the story of life. Expectation and skepticism. That was very much the experience in the first century of Israel. The expectation was that once and for all, Israel will be set free from the rule of its enemies. And we see that even in the song that Zechariah sings, that song, that prophecy that he gives, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies, to enable us to serve them without fear. That awareness that there was something that needed to be, you know, taken from them. And in a sense, it's very understandable. When things don't work out well, 
what do we tend to do? We often tend to blame someone else. It's the government. It's the Romans. Or it's Boris. Or it's Nicola. Or it's Jeremy. Or whoever. Or it's my wife. Or my husband. Or my children. Or my jeans. Not the ones we wear, but the, you know. Or it's my school. Or it's my employer. Or whatever, we tend to look for faults in other people and in other circumstances to explain why things are the way they are. And just a little aside, is it getting a bit cold in here? Yes. Can you maybe go and check and see if the heating's... Um, I'm feeling I'm up the front and I'm moving about. Um, and so there's a tendency to blame and to look at others. And that's understandable. And there may well be faults in other people or in other circumstances. But the reality is, ultimately, what is the big enemy that we have most of all? The truth, is, sadly, is the enemy often is ourselves. Look at what, and this is why it's so significant. When he goes on, Zechariah goes on, verse 76, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven. Just if you have a Bible, and if you don't, well, I appreciate it's not easy this morning to get one. I'll read it to you from the book of Jeremiah. From the book of Jeremiah. We could be running all over the place and get completely lost looking at this verse and that verse. And I know it's very unhelpful. But Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. We, just to see that this is a fulfillment of promises. Jeremiah chapter 31, it begins, Jeremiah is giving a prophet. We've often heard of the, you know, the prophet, Je you're a right Jeremiah, you're a prophet of gloom and doom. And Jeremiah, like all the prophets, had to bring God's warning. Remember last Sunday what we said, true prophecy will contain within it a warning, a warning, a call to repent, as well as a blessing. We like the blessing, we like the good news, but the bad news has to come first. Jesus, the supreme great prophet of God, said, repent, before he said the good news was coming. And there's that warning in Jeremiah 31. It says, at that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they will be my people. And then he goes on, and we're not going to go on to tell what's going to happen through the exile and the punishment Israel's going to go through and all the rest of it. And he goes on at great length at that. And yet even through that, there's the promise, you know, at verse 25, will refresh the weary and satisfy the faint. There is the promise of restoration, the promise of a new beginning. The Lord will create a new thing on earth. Verse 22, there's these promises of hope. But anyway, verse 30, verse 30, talking about the immediate circumstances, he says, everyone will die for their own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, their own teeth will be set in age. Then he says this, and this is the bit we want to look at. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their hands and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. 
for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Why do we have the Old Testament? And why is it called that, the Old Testament and the New Testament? Why is it just not one big book? Why is it the Old Covenant? Literally, that's what it means. And the New Covenant, because the New Testament, the New Covenant, tells us about this covenant that God said he would do through the prophet Jeremiah, and indeed through the other prophets. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people, because they will all know me from the least unto the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is ultimately what the gospel and the coming of Jesus is all about. Yes, it has an impact on social justice. Yes, it should cause our hearts to have compassion on those who are in need. I thank you this morning for your generosity and your gifts for the city mission, both material and I can see too in a number of gift cards. And thank you for that. And it's only right as Christians that our hearts should be stirred in compassion for the practical needs of people and not just for folk in the city mission. We support Unfortunately, because of our present time, we have to support one or two families that we have contact with within our own community, practically, who are trying their best, but the circumstances and situations are in need. We live in those days, and we should be stirred. But my friends, that ultimately is not at what is heart of the gospel. Yes, we should be concerned about the political situation in our country, and as Christians, we should be salt and light and influence that. Yes, we should be concerned about what's going on in our world, and yes, certainly concerned about global warming. And I hope you all do your recycling and don't just keep putting your plastic in the bin and expect the dustbin man to put it in the tip where it's going to lie for thousands of years. Yes, as Christians, we have that responsibility and calling, but that ultimately is not what is the heart of the gospel. And that's why Zechariah tells John the Baptist, the last great prophet of Israel, that he will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. That's what the gospel and Christmas is all about. You shall call him Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. And a Christmas tree, what it is, might well be the means of causing someone to come here on Christmas Eve. And perhaps here, not just see this building in its simple but yet profound beauty, but far more significance to meet with the God, the eternal God, who's big and mighty, and yet who enters in and who speaks a new life. The dead, you see. I still remember Christmas, must be oh dear, 40 years ago, more, in Burnside, one Christmas Eve. And the, the, there's a big building, kind of like the old parish, a bit different, almost, almost borders a bit like Bordeaux Parish in terms of its size. But nonetheless, it was a big building, so their tree was pretty big. And I have to say, I was speaking last year, we were talking about the size of the tree, and somebody, right, I understand this, it was awfully big, not something a wee bit smaller, and I can understand that. And I said, well, you see, I'm afraid I've been spoiled, because they had big trees at Burnside. But you know, I still remember 40 years ago and more, 
one Christmas Eve, sitting in Burns. It was packed in those days, the watch night service. The folk with their curries and their carries at the back of the church could seat 500 easily. And this beautiful tree in the chancel. Beautiful. And this lady from the choir doing her best to sing in the bleak midwinter. And she sang it very well. But just that truth. Our God, heaven cannot hold him, nor earth sustain. Heaven and earth shall flee away when he comes to reign. In the bleak midwinter, a stable place sufficed, the Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ. Angels and archangels may have gathered there, cherubim and seraphim thronged the air, but his mother only, in her maiden bliss, worship the beloved with a kiss. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what I can, I give him. Give my heart. And that Christmas Eve, with that beautiful tree, that lady doing her best from the choir, singing that beautiful carol, God called me and began his calling to enter into the ministry of his word. Let's have a big tree. For we have a big God and a glorious gospel to proclaim this Christmas season. Let's sing together as we bring our offering. A song that reminds us of who that God is, Emmanuel, O oh Emmanuel, bowed in awe, I worship at your feet and sing Emmanuel, God is. Thank you for listening to the Park Church Podcast. I hope you enjoy the sermon.